Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew, chapter 1. We are in the midst of a series of messages that we're calling Hark. And the idea behind it is that we're looking at the four times in the New Testament story of Christmas when angels appeared to give a message to characters that were surrounding Christmas, people that were in Christmas. And so two weeks ago, we started with the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. Last week, we talked about the angel appearing to Mary. And then today, we're going to continue in that series by looking at the time when Joseph has an angel appear to him. One of the things that I want to kind of talk about today, or one of the angles that we want to take today, is sometimes following Jesus is made to seem to be easier than it really is. I don't know if you've ever been in this place before, but one of my greatest frustrations in life, and that may sound like an exaggeration, but it's not, is Christmas morning toy packaging. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Apparently I'm the only one that struggles with this. Do y'all know like the zip ties they put on and the, and the Barbies? Can I, I see that hand. I see that hand. All right. The Barbies. And here's the thing that gets me now on the Barbies. The, um, the strangulation devices they put on their necks. Y'all know like the rubber bands that you can't break or cut and you just have to, I mean, you don't really want to do this in front of your six-year-old daughter, but you just have to rip it open real fast and hope that the head stays on intact with the rest of the body, right? I mean, things sometimes it looks like you're like, oh, that's a cute toy. That'll be easy to get into. And then as you begin to unwrap and um, the tape that they use is not normal tape, the, the way that they decide to package things, the twist ties in the back, the popping plastic things. Some of you are looking at me like I'm an idiot right now, but you, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Things look easy, and then when you start to get into it, it's very, very difficult. Sometimes Christmas in particular makes it seem easy to follow Jesus. I mean, it's a cute baby in a manger. We got the cool story of Mary and Joseph and the wise men showing up and the shepherds out in the field doing their business and all of a sudden an angel and then multitudes of angels appear and it seems like, man, this is a storybook kind of message. But when we begin to pull the layers back like we did last week with Mary, this week with Joseph, what we discover is the first Christmas reminds us that actually following Jesus is hard. There's a great irony in the Christian life that following Jesus ushers you into a life that is simultaneously the greatest thing you could ever imagine, the most joyful experience you could ever attain, and yet it can also be the most difficult path on earth. John 10.10 tells us that Jesus came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. Psalm 16.11 says that in God's presence there is the fullness of joy. And Psalm 84.10 tells us that it is better to spend a day in God's presence than 10,000 elsewhere. But Matthew 16 tells us that if we're going to follow Jesus, we must take up our cross and follow him. 
And I know that in our day, in our time, the cross is something that's come to come to have this symbolic meaning. And some of you in this room probably are wearing a cross around your neck or have a piece of jewelry that has a cross in it or is the major part of the jewelry. Some of you in this room may have a cross as a tattoo somewhere. But in their day and time, no respectable, nice person would have been walking around with a cross tattoo or a cross hanging around their neck. Be like today walking into somebody's home and over their fireplace, they've got a large picture of a painting of a firing squad. Sitting down to dinner and you're looking around the table and the decorations on the table runner are of an electric chair. Like if you've been invited to dinner in that home, you're going to find a reason to escape fairly quickly. Oh, I just remembered I. You asked for lunch. I thought you just were coming by to say hello. I've actually, I think, let me look. Yeah, my phone's telling me I've got to be somewhere else. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 15, that if the resurrection is not true, that if what the Bible teaches about Jesus being raised from the dead, the baby in the manger being crucified and then raised from the dead, he says if that's not true, then we as believers are to be the most pitied people in the world. For Paul, Jesus following Jesus meant sacrifice and suffering and having question unanswered and persecution in his life. It was not an easy life. And he says that if at the end of it I come to the place where I have given up all of this stuff, if I have forgotten all of this, if I have abandoned all of this and I get to the end and I find out it's not true, I am to be pitied above all people because it's not worth it. What I want to focus on today is the life of Joseph, the moment that he had with the angel, and then the questions that he raises about us or for us about what it means to follow Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says this. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. And I want to unpack that for a minute before we move on to the story to give you an understanding of what's really going on here. And so what is happening is that Joseph and Mary are engaged to be married. They're betrothed was the term. In Jewish culture, what you have to understand is that being betrothed, being engaged, was as serious and as binding as being married. In fact... What happened is when two people were going to get married, they were engaged, they were betrothed, and they waited one full year before they actually were able to live together or they were able actually to be together. And there was a year of waiting, of proving of purity. You see, in those days, marriages were arranged. The families, the mothers and fathers chose who their sons and daughters were going to marry. They arranged it. Reason number 412, I'm glad I didn't live back then. Right? Because can you imagine who your parents would have chosen for you? Some of you are like, well, they may have chosen better. Don't tell your spouse that, all right? Now, as a parent, I wouldn't mind going back to those days, perhaps. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord, right? Getting to choose. But they would choose. And so what would happen is that the husband or the the husband's family and the bride's family would make this arrangement. They would agree on this. And the husband's family would pay to the bride's family a significant amount of money. 
They would give them a dowry, a significant amount. I mean, this would have been like they, they didn't have money like us. This would have been cattle. This would have been livestock. This would have been parts of a business like stock options in today's world. They would have given them a significant amount of money and they would have said, but we're not going to make that fully vested until the year waiting period has happened. And then the husband and wife that were engaged to be married waited a year to make sure that she was pure. Now, what were they waiting a year to see if it happened? How would they know she was pure? They waited a year, and what were they looking for? If she got pregnant, had a baby. They didn't fully understand the science of it us today, 40 weeks, 38 weeks. They didn't understand all of that. They just knew that it took less than a year for that to happen, and so they waited to make sure she didn't have a baby. Parents paying the price wanted to make sure that the girl was pure. So they required a year of waiting before you could live together, before you could be together, to make sure she wasn't pregnant or about to have a baby. And after that year was clear, then you officially had the full ceremony. You got together, you had a seven-day party, and then you went and you lived together as husband and wife. It was so serious that if you wanted to break an engagement, you had to get an official divorce. I want you to imagine something. Joseph, who the scripture just told us, is a righteous man. Righteous here would mean, it was a technical term, meaning someone of uncompromising obedience. Did not eat unclean food. Did not, uh, did not associate with unclean people. Lived the law exactly like he was supposed to live. When you were a Jewish male, you were called this word, righteous. It was the highest compliment you could get. So this righteous man, this guy that does everything right all the time, has found out he is engaged to marry. They have begun the relationship, although they can't be together, they can't live together. They have begun that partnership of figuring out what it means and who they are and all of that through the process. And in the midst of that, she comes to you and tells you that she's pregnant. And if you're Joseph, there's only one thing you know for sure. In this whole scenario, there is one thing that you know for sure, and that is she's pregnant and you are not the father. So Joseph didn't believe her when she told him it was of God, and neither would you. Imagine, what would it have been like to hear that from the girl that you were engaged to be married, that your life was planned with, that your family had done all of this for, that had paid the dowry, that it was time? Joseph For whatever reason, in spite of that, because he was a good guy, because he was trying to do what was best, decided to arrange a way that he could privately do. He had lots of options. He could have brought her up for stoning. He could have brought public humiliation. He could have denounced her in the midst of the square. But he wanted to quietly take care of what was going on. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. The angel goes on to say, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him Jesus. So Joseph hears from the angel, responds as obedience. 
The question that I want to ask today as we kind of begin this process and then to look at Joseph's life for an example of this is have you ever wondered why God did it this way? I mean, both of these people appear to be good, upstanding, righteous people, people that are trying to live their life for the Lord, trying to do the right thing. And yet God brings this into their lives. It's going to ruin both of their reputations. Angel didn't show up in town. He didn't come to the town square and say, hey, everybody, just want you to know y'all are a privileged place. These two people, Mary and Joseph, God's going to do something amazing through their life. It's going to be an unbelievable story. Give them some wide berth. Just trust us. Everything's okay. He didn't show up to the whole town and do that. He didn't show up from what we can tell in Scripture to their moms and dads to tell them that. He shows up specifically to the two individuals, the two individuals alone, and Mary's cousin, That's it. And then he says to them, live in the midst of this. I mean, Mary, we talked about this last week, was going to live for the rest of her life with his hanging over her head. She was the girl that was engaged to Joseph and then she got pregnant in the year waiting period. What kind of girl does that? They would have looked at her and said, no one would have thought it would have been Mary. Nobody would have thought about Mary. Not Mary, not her. She was the last we would have considered. And here's the thing about Joseph. Joseph, the righteous man, the one in town, people go, Mary is so lucky she is marrying Joseph. Joseph is the righteous one. He is the one that is following God's rules. As soon as he agrees to marry Mary, as soon as he agrees to continue with it, the assumption in town is what? That it's his. Which means he's broken the law and his name is now ruined. We know this from hindsight, but we also know that when they get married, after they have the child of Jesus, they have to flee to Egypt. Pregnancy ruined both of their reputations. Mary did not get the storybook wedding that she wanted. Now, their weddings weren't like our weddings. They weren't one to one day throw it all in there, one day uh, celebration. It was a seven day party. And while it may be different than what girls of today grow up dreaming about with their wedding, there may not have been a barn involved or whatever's going on today, but here's what was going on. It was a seven day party that every girl dreamed of for their whole lives. The whole town stopped for a week. It was a week long vacation and it was in the works. It was in the process because they were already engaged. They were already betrothed. And then suddenly that is ripped away from her. And you say, is that what life is all about? Is that what it means to follow Jesus? Here's what I tell you. I think one of the reasons that God chose to do it this way, not don't pretend to know the mind of God, but one of the reasons I think he chose to do it this way is because he reminds us in the very first story of Jesus being born in Matthew chapter 1 that following Jesus is hard. Doing what God commands is not Always easy. Three things that I see in this passage that for us can help us to think about what it means to follow Jesus. Just going to warn you right on the very beginning. This is not your holly jolly feel good Christmas message. All right. We may have one of those next week. I may try to bring one in. All right. But I want to be real about what the scripture teaches us about this couple and what they went through. The first thing we see in this passage is that following Jesus means complete, absolute trust Absolute obedience. It means absolute obedience. Joseph had to believe the impossible and risk everything in his life 
on the impossible. He had to believe that what was being told to him about God was absolutely true by the angel, that it was absolutely true what had happened with Mary, and he staked everything in his life on it being true. Like Paul who said, if I get to the end of my life and this is not true, I am to be pitied above all men. Joseph, if he gets to the end of his life and found out it wasn't true, he had given up everything for something that was a lie. He trusted the Lord and he followed it completely. And he believed it to be true. And our lives, when it comes to complete and absolute obedience, means that we trust that what the Lord has taught us, what the Lord teaches us, what we hear about Jesus in Scripture is true, and we do everything in our lives to obey completely, and we live our lives based on obedience to what God has called us to do. In the next few weeks, you're going to hear about a family that Jeff knows. It's a young family. From eastern Tennessee. That is going to be leaving soon to go overseas. As a missionary with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we tell you their story. We're going to give some specific instructions to you. And we're going to have some specific instructions from us. About how much and where we can share information about them. Because the place to where they are going. Is a place that is not completely open to the gospel. And it would be dangerous to them and to their mission. If we found out or people found out where they were. And why. And this is a family that grew up in a church just like you. Went to places and vacation Bible school. And worked camp in the summer with Jeff. That's how Jeff got to meet them. Worked camp for the summer. People just like us who have decided that they are going to follow Jesus and go to the ends of the earth to a place where it is not open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are literally putting their life and their entire family's life on the line for the sake of the gospel. Following Jesus requires absolute obedience. Scripture throughout tells us that what God desires from us is not more stuff. It's not more verbal um, acknowledgement of who he is. It is actual obedience with our lives. In the Old Testament, he tells them that obedience is better than sacrifice. In the New Testament, he would hear that if you want to show people that you love me, if you want to show me that you love me, the way that you show your love for the Lord is by obeying what I've called you to do. Jesus tells us at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon in history, at the end of that sermon, he says, now if you take what you've heard and you you don't do anything about it, then you are like the one that has built your house on a sand. It is going to get ripped away. But if you build your life on the obedience to the things that I have told you, then you have built your life on the rock and it will stand firm. The point is obedience is necessary to following Jesus and obedience means that it will be difficult for us to do the things that God calls us to do because... Obedience often calls us out of where we are comfortable or what we would choose to do. When I thought about that family that's moving overseas, I couldn't help but think of the quote from Jim Elliott because some people have questioned how smart it is to do that. Or um, I told you the story a couple of weeks ago about the, the young man with, that went to an unreached people group on an island off of India. And was killed by that tribe. And people are, there have been articles back and forth questioning his motives and whether he did the right thing and should we be doing that? Should he try to engage people that have never heard? And all of these discussions go back and forth and I can't help but think of the quote from Jim Elliott who himself was killed when he tried to talk to a group of people that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ before. And he says, he, a man, is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
And absolute obedience means that we are willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose in following Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see that following Christ requires absolute obedience. The second thing we see in this passage is that following Jesus requires denying yourself. Now, in Jewish law, Mary's out-of-wedlock child pregnancy literally put her under a death sentence. But beyond that, Mary and Joseph had to die to their good name, their cherished dreams, their families, their homelands. Joseph would have to give up everything in his business and move to Egypt, start over there, and then move back to his native area and start over again. Following Christ means that we literally give up those things in our lives that we think are all about our needs. God's calling some of you to take steps and actions that would deny yourself in order to serve others, in order to serve your family, in order to serve this church, in order to serve your neighbors, in order to serve those around the world. And God is calling you to do that. And for you to follow Christ means to deny yourself. That's what it says in Scripture, that anyone who is to come after me first must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He spent many years in prison because he was preaching the gospel in his own country. And in prison, he wrote about the sorrow of missing his wife, of missing his kids. He had a daughter who was blind, who he said is nearer to my heart than any of the others. He says, it literally feels like when I think about my kids, when I think about my wife, that they are pulling the flesh from my bones, that I have often brought to mind the hardships that are there, the miseries that is happening. And as he's sitting in that jail cell, he says... But if I'm going to follow Christ, I must realize that obedience to him is first above everything else and everyone else in my life. By the way, there's a detail in the story that shows us another way of denial from Joseph that sometimes is skipped over. Verse 25 tells us that Joseph didn't know Mary in the biblical sense until after the birth of Jesus. And so Joseph waited the mandatory year, or close to it probably, and then waited another year just to make sure that what was happening there was God's doing and not his. Not only did he wait a year in betrothal, he waited another year. And that's significant. Following Jesus means denying yourself some things that you might otherwise enjoy and might have rights to do. That there are things in our lives that sometimes we say, I have every right to do that. I don't see anything wrong with that. And there may not be anything physically wrong with what you're talking about. There may be rights that you have to do it. But following Christ means sometimes denying yourself in that, putting yourself on the back seat and following him regardless. Here's the last thing we see in Joseph's life. Following Christ means, following Jesus means being willing to embrace inconvenience. Man, do you realize how much Jesus' birth complicated Joseph's life? Messed up his relationships with his family, his friends, his job. He had to move. He had to start over. But can I tell you something? Following Jesus is rarely convenient or comfortable. Sometimes people are looking for a church or a walk with Jesus that makes them feel comfortable and that's convenient for them but following christ is rarely convenient 
Rarely comfortable. There are times that people say, well, you know, I don't volunteer at church with the kids ministry or with preschool ministry or with extended care because, man, I've got I got four kids or I got three kids or I got a couple of kids and I spend all week with them. Now I go to church. I just want to I just want to veg out. I don't want to worry about serving in that capacity. The question becomes, is that just you giving into comfort and convenience or is are you missing something God's calling you to do? We have people in our church that serve in all kinds of varieties. We have people that serve in nursery. We have people that are serving right now in guest services, that stand in the parking lot, that, that greet at the door. Many of you have been a part of that. Some of you have been a part of it. Some of you haven't. And sometimes I hear, well, it's just not my thing, or it's just not, not what, I'm, what I'm comfortable with. And here's the thing. As followers of Jesus Christ, if we're not doing something with our lives that makes us uncomfortable, we are missing something that God intends for us to do. Because following Christ will be inconvenient and it will be uncomfortable if we are doing what God has called us to do. It will not be like a Sunday afternoon nap when everything around us is peaceful. We had a parents afternoon out a couple of weeks ago where, you know, we bring kids and uh, great ministry that we do here at the church. And the idea is that that should give parents an opportunity to go and do some shopping, to do some errands that they may not be able to get done because they've got the kids. And so Susan and I always take advantage of that. Of course, um, two of our kids are, are aging out of the whole process because it goes up to fifth grade. We have two boys that are out of that, but our two girls love it and they come. And so we came and Luke actually helped this year. And so we, uh, we came, we got them dropped off, went back to the house. Susan and I had a plan to do in our lives. We had, we had things that we needed to get done that Saturday afternoon to make sure we stayed on schedule with December. I don't know if you realize this or not, but December is like the craziest month there is. We have these, you know, you got to get this done. We need to get this done. We need to get that done. We sat down and we said, we're going to do that in 15 minutes. Then we woke up an hour and a half later. Right? Because, listen, the house was quiet. That is a rare thing for us. When I first got into ministry, one of the advices, one of the pieces of advices I got from my father-in-law who's been pastoring, who had been pastoring at that time for over 40 years was to give everything you got on Sunday morning, eat a good lunch and go home and take a couple hour nap and get ready for the rest of the time. And I was like, man, that's awesome. All right. And so that's what I try to do. Here's the problem. Now on Sunday afternoons, when I'm laying down to take a nap, there is noise in my house all over the place. It's not easy to just relax. There are a lot of us that wish Christianity, I want to admit to you as your pastor, there are times that I wish following Jesus was like the Sunday afternoon naps when we didn't have any kids. Those were some good naps. We didn't need naps near as much back then either. Because we didn't have any kids. Can I get an amen? Right? Back then you're like, naps? Now you're like, that is like the greatest thing God has ever invented. Right? A lot of us would wish that our following Christ would be comfortable and convenient, but it's not. And I think about the ways that God is calling people of our generation to reach people and to serve him. Things like adoption and fostering children. I remember watching the video from the Tennessee Baptist Children's Home that we watched a couple of weeks ago and just thinking about how inconvenient that is for those families. If you ever think that fostering or adopting children is a convenient thing, talk to someone who has done it. 
If you start doing it because it's a preference or a fad or because you think it'll look cool on your Christmas card, you will quickly discover that there is much more to it than that. What you discover is that it is a calling of God on your life. And when he does that, it will not be convenient. It is still God's calling on your life. Sharing Christ is rarely convenient. I cannot remember the last time I was walking next to someone, sitting next to someone, at a restaurant with someone, walking across the street with a neighbor, and they just looked, Hi, I would like for you to share Jesus with me right now. Could you do that for me, please? It doesn't happen. It's usually going to take an awkward question or an awkward moment or some way that's going to put yourself out there. There are times when I don't want to share, when I'm at a place. There are times that it's inconvenient for me to do that. And yet scripture teaches us again and again that we're called to share our faith. If as a church and as the church in large, we want to racially diversify who we are because that is the calling of God on us from scripture, it's not going to be convenient. Getting to know people that are from different backgrounds and different places, different experiences is not convenient. And yet it's called by God on our life to do so. In fact, I would say to you, if the defining characteristic of the church that you're looking for is convenience and comfort, this is probably not the place for you. Because to become the people that God intends for us to be, to become the church that God wants us to be, we need to be willing to embrace inconvenience for the sake of the mission of God. Our priority is not our convenience. Our priority is to take the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth, to the state in which we live, to the city in which we are a part of. It is literally to go from here to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's going to be inconvenient on all of us. Joseph is faced with a decision about what to do. And he realizes that it's going to mean absolute obedience to do what the angel's calling him to do, that it will mean denying himself and that it will be completely inconvenient. And yet scripture gives the idea that there is not a hesitation. Immediately it tells us in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, the idea is the moment he woke up. So he has this dream, he encounters the angel immediately upon waking up from that. He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. Man, I would have loved to have seen that conversation with Mary. Because you know, she probably had an idea of what he was coming to say. And we don't know for sure if the angel would let him in. We don't have any clue that he would let him in, that I am going to go see Joseph and tell him this is all okay. So she was probably fearing the worst. And yet Joseph comes and says, we are going to follow the Lord. And I want to end today by doing this. I want to give you the reason that Joseph did it. And the reason that Joseph did it is seen in the midst of the revelation of the name of the baby. Because the angel says to him, see, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. Now, the truth is that's the second name that the angel has given for the child in this passage. 
It's a quote, that uh, part of verse 23 is a quote from Isaiah 7:14, when King Ahaz is being attacked by an army of Syria and he is surrounded and he's worried and he goes and he says, God won't listen to me, I'm a wicked king. And Isaiah comes and says, listen, God has heard you, God's going to protect us. And he gives this vision that a child is going to give birth and that when that's over, when that is a sign from God that God's going to protect his people, that God's going to protect them long term and that God is going to make sure they go forward. Now, people around would have been like, well, that's not a big deal. There are all these, there are all these ladies around here. That's just a cool thing that God's going to take care of us. But Matthew comes and says, the prophecy there was that God was going to save them, but he's also going to save you. And he gives them this picture that God is with us. The point that he makes is that God is a promise keeping God. That God is continually active in the world about what is happening here. After 700 years, he is saying to him that God is still working. God is still moving. And in your life, he will protect you. He is fulfilling a promise that has been 700 years in the making. He will fulfill his promise to you. And in that moment, Joseph saw that God was faithful to keep the fullest, all the promises he had ever made. And then we see this remarkable name, Emmanuel. The most foundational doctrine or belief in the Christian faith is that the baby born in the manger was 100% man and 100% God. Now, I'm not sure how all that came together, but that's what Scripture teaches, and I believe it with every fiber of my being. You see, he had to be fully man because he could only be a true representative of us if he was fully man. He lived the life we were supposed to live without sin. He died the death we were supposed to die. He condemned death by dying the death you and I were supposed to die. He raised again from the grave to bring victory over death for you and for me. But he had to be God because the only one capable to save from the Old Testament forward is God himself. Salvation belongs to our God. He doesn't contract that out to somebody else. The whole point in God's story is that he wants a relationship with us. In the Garden of Eden, he walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. When he delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he gave them a cloud by day and a fire by night to show his presence with them. When they got into the wilderness, he had them build a tabernacle where his glory came and dwelt among them and they knew he was with them. And then the angel comes and says, Jesus is now living with us, that Jesus is the presence of God on this place. And when Jesus left, he said, I'm leaving the Holy Spirit. I'm no longer going to be with you through the Holy Spirit. For those of you that have accepted the salvation that I bring, I will be in you. We weren't created to serve a distant God who set everything in motion and then sat and watched it play out. We serve a God that is intimately involved with the details of the earth and desires to have a relationship with you that is as intimate as any relationship you have. The question is, do you know God that way? Seeing the baby that was about to be born, Jesus, the Lord who saves, as Emmanuel, the God who is with us, gave Joseph the strength to follow him. The secret is that everything that God is asking Joseph and Mary to do, he will do for them in a greater sense. Like Mary and Joseph, Jesus was going to be misunderstood and falsely accused. The religious establishment would despise him and condemn him as they would his parents. 
Like Mary, Jesus would carry about in his body a death sentence for being falsely accused, except he actually would die in shame. and self-denial, he would take the cross upon his back. He would carry it to his own place of crucifixion. He would have the nails driven into his wrist and to his feet. He would take our sin, bore our shame. Surely, Isaiah says, he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken, afflicted by God. Essentially, Joseph is being asked to share in the sufferings of Jesus. And to follow Christ means to suffer with him. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened if Joseph had said no? If you had chosen the easy route, perhaps not believe the angel... Divorced Mary quietly, cast her aside, married a different girl. Perhaps he got what might have been a storybook wedding, had a nice little carpentry business, been able to live a normal Jewish life. And yet, in the midst of all of that, he would have missed out on Jesus. And here's the truth. You and I, this week, every day, will be challenged with whether we are going to take a life of ease and comfort and convenience. Or if we're going to choose to follow the path of Jesus. I don't know whether you notice this or not, but our world is continually moving to more and more convenience. Right? It's interesting because the convenience store used to be the most convenient thing you can do. It's now one of the hardest things to get in and out of. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but have you been to the Walmart in Hendersonville? And maybe not this time of year, maybe you avoid that like the plague. But you know the Walmart in Hendersonville and you walk in, have you seen on the left side you walk in the huge tower? Anybody been there? You know what that is? You go in, you order something online, they give you a code, you put the code in, a locker pops open, you grab it and you go. That's the second most convenient way to get your stuff there. The most convenient way is just to park your car outside, dial a number and they bring it to your car. Anybody here ever use Kroger or ClickList? Again, amen in the house of the Lord for that. Right? Shop all your stuff. You go call the number. They bring it to your car. They load it for you. I saw people with the hand praising God symbol on Facebook for the Kroger ClickList. We went a step farther than that a few weeks ago. We got a free delivery. First time deal. Try it out from Publix. They'll deliver it to your door. I don't know what the next most convenient thing is. They're going to set it into my pantry and cook me supper is what's going to happen next. Right? You know what we try to avoid like everything in the world? Inconvenience. None of us likes it. I had to drive through Rivergate yesterday about noon. Yeah. This is not good. So inconvenient. And in a life built around trying to make everything convenient... Sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Jesus calls us to an uncomfortable, inconvenient life for his sake. The question is, are you going to obey? Now, here's what I'll tell you. The reason you do it is because God still keeps his promises. And what you gain in sacrificing now is far greater than anything we can imagine. Part of the reason I was driving through Rivergate yesterday is because I had the privilege of doing a funeral in Hendersonville and then I had an appointment 
a game to coach on this side of town. I did a funeral for Mr. Robert Wilkinson, and some of you may not know Mr. Robert. Many of you may know Mr. Robert. Mr. Robert was a great man. He'll be 85 years old. Mr. Robert, one of the first uh, things I remember about being at this church is I got invited to the fisherman's class, Sunday school class. They had a breakfast at Mr. Robert and Shirley and Miss Shirley Wilkerson's um, house. And we got to go and visit them. And Mr. Robert, we got through eating. And they, one of the things I loved about that class, they had always had lots of good breakfast meats, all right? Lots of good stuff. And so we ate and ate and ate. And Eli was with me. I took him with me. He was four or five years old. And he went with me, had a great time. And we went over and, and Mr. Robert said, hey, I want to show you something since you've got Eli. I want to show you something before you go. So that's cool, all right? So he says, I want to show you something in the shed. Now, anybody that knows Mr. Robert knew about his shed because in his shed, one of his hobbies was um, restoring uh, antique tractors. Mr. Robert was a guy that would would restore the antique tractors. All along the wall were just various farm implements from history. He'd tell you about that. He'd tell you all about the tractors. He had, I can't remember how many he had in there, four or five or there. I remember seeing them around. And I remember, you know, some people have that kind of stuff and you bring a little kid in there and they're kind of like, you know, stand off to the back or keep them behind the rope, if you will. He was like, hey, you want to sit on it? He took Eli and he put him up on top of that. And Eli immediately grabbed the wheel. And the biggest laugh in the whole place was Mr. Robert Wilkinson. He was a great man, lived 85 years, lived a great life. And as I was sitting there yesterday, his family had shared about him. He was a man committed to the Lord, one of the best encouragers that I've ever had in ministry. I love that family. As Mr. Robert, as I was talking about him, I said, here's the thing that we have to remember. Mr. Robert was a man who lived the life he lived because he believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And he was being obedient to what God called him to do. And as we talked about that, one of the things I said, though, is what we fail to realize when we stand here on a day like today and said he lived a long life is that in the scope of eternity, the 85 years he spent on this earth will be a blip in the timeline of his existence. And there are many times in our lives that we fail to follow Christ because we are thinking about a momentary inconvenience that's going to happen with our schedule or with our comfort. And we do not get a grand vision of what is actually taking place in the grand scheme of eternity that we would gladly give up this momentary thing for the truth of what's happening forever. And what Joseph did in this moment is weighing the things that were there. And I'm not, I'm not saying that Joseph had the wherewithal to think through everything possible imagination. But what I am saying is he chose to follow Christ no matter what it meant for him at that moment. And the question you're going to have this week is, will you do the same? No matter what it may cost you or how inconvenient it may be. Let's pray together.